0: Welcome back to Young Smart Money Season 2. My name's Apple Kreider, and I'm your host. Now, a lot of us are trying to build a sustainable business online, something that lasts for the long term, and our guest today has done exactly that. So, Chelsea Fagan is one of the co-founders of The Financial Diet, which is a digital media company focusing primarily on giving young women the tools to make good financial decisions and to become more financially confident. So, today we're talking about is really growing that online business from just her and her co-founder to the place where they're at now, a seven-person team that is creating a serious, serious impact online, reaching over 500,000 YouTube subscribers. And we're covering anything from what it actually feels like to hand off the reins of your business that you started. We're talking about some of the biggest challenges that were faced by Chelsea and her team as they got started. And we even talk a little bit about swing dancing. So definitely be sure to stick around. And if you've gotten some value out Of young smart money thus far and it has helped you on your journey do consider leaving us a five-star review in itunes it really does help us reach more people and get our message out to more people and it helps you hear from even more amazing guests thanks for listening and enjoy the show chelsea welcome to young smart money today how are you doing i'm doing great how are you I am doing just fantastic. I'm really excited to have you kicking off season two of the show. Um, and I felt like you were a really good fit for the show because what we talk about here is a mixture of personal finance and entrepreneurship. And with what you're doing and with what all the financial diet is all about, I thought that would be a really good fit. So could you give our listeners just a brief overview of what you're working on right now and what the financial diet actually is? Uh,
1: sure. So right now I'm just working on continuing to grow. Uh, the Financial Diet across all the different platforms we work on. But yeah, so basically, The Financial Diet is a media company. We talk about money and personal finance for young women. Um, and, you know, we obviously we do YouTube, we have a website all across social media, we have books, events. So we really kind of just talk about money in every way you can talk about it. And, um, you know, our, our audience is primarily, you know, women in their 20s, but uh, we don't discriminate. You're allowed to read it if you're a man. Uh, But we generally find that there has not always been a place for women to talk about money in a way that is both intelligent and fun. It's usually kind of one or the other. Um, And so that's what we endeavor to create. And that's what we do.
0: Awesome. I love it. And even though I am not a 20-something woman, you guys were actually the first financial YouTube channel that I ever consumed. Um, And I've been watching y'all's content for um, at least two and a half to three years now, so I definitely, really, really, I, I dig what you guys are doing, and and the value you're providing is, is is amazing. So that's really why I wanted to reach out and have you Thank guys. On you. The show. Yeah, absolutely. So Thank what you. I like to do with my guests is really sort of break down for our listeners who are mostly young people, high school and college students really how you got to where you're at and the, the sort of path that led you to where you currently are. So the first thing that I'd like to hit on is really what was your early experience with money like? Now that you're providing all of this uh, money-related content, um, can you talk a little bit about growing up? What was what was money like for you? Was it something that you talked about a lot? Was it not? Um, and just what was that looking like?
1: So when I was much younger, uh, like in my true childhood, my family was kind of poor. We didn't have a lot of money. Um, we mm-hmm. never... You know, uh, we always had food to eat and a roof over our heads, but we certainly didn't have a lot of luxuries. Um, so that was definitely I think a formative experience in the sense that when you don't have a lot of money, it's kind of all you think about. Um, mm. and so I learned pretty early on that not talking and not thinking about money was a luxury um, and and so that definitely I think inspired a desire to at least broach the subject because I, I had always felt at that time that it was something that was really caught up in in shame and something you were supposed to keep secret. Um, But as I, as I got older um, into my teens and early twenties, I had enough, um, I had enough money in terms of just, you know, making money at summer jobs or, or, you know, babysitting during the week or or whatever that I could, I could buy the things that I wanted, um, that my parents wouldn't buy for me, even though they were, they had more money at that time, they were still very frugal. Um, so I could go out and at the time I'd buy things like UGG boots or, you know, Abercrombie and fit shirts. Um, but to me, I think because I didn't really have that, um, fundamental basis of the, of how you are supposed to let money or, or allow money to structure your life, money to me was just sort of like, it was like you were playing a video game and it was like gold coins that you could exchange for things at the market. It was, I think, purely frivolous to me and purely about the acquisition of things because that's what I never had. Um, I just wanted stuff. And it also happened that at that time in my life, I was living in a town that was very um, affluent. And although we were middle class, when you're middle class and everyone around you is very affluent, especially when you're a teenager, you feel poor. So it was kind of a similar dynamic to my childhood, except that now I had enough money that I was earning on my own that I could go out and buy those, those luxury items. So to make a long story short, I spent myself into a ruined credit score and absolutely no money in my bank account. Um, in fact, negative money in my bank account because of all the overdraft fees. Um, and I, I around the age of 22 was the first time I got uh, a real sizable check that I could do something with. Um, and I said to myself, you know, you can just keep kind of having this fraught relationship with money and you can keep um, spending in a really stupid way and, and you can keep putting yourself, putting yourself in these holes. Or you can take this as an opportunity to pay off that defaulted credit card and start building your life. And that's what I chose to do. Um, And then around the age of 25, I realized that I was slightly better with money. Like I was not drowning financially and I was not just spending all of my money on frivolous shit, but Mm -hmm. I still wasn't good with money. There was still a lot that I didn't know. And so that's when I started the financial diet.
0: Wow. That's, that's, that's quite the journey. And I can see how. How that early life experience could be really pivotal in bringing about this whole, this whole media company that you have developed over, over the years. So tying into that, I also like to talk about early experiences with entrepreneurship. So you said you started making some money at the age of 22. Um, was that through some kind of venture you started pre-financial diet, or was that through a job? Can you talk a little bit about how you were making money and if you uh, embarked on any entrepreneurial endeavors at that young age?
1: Yeah. So before the financial diet, I was a freelance writer and then I was uh, in-house at uh, another digital media company. And that that big check that I got at 22—that was because I sold my first book, um, which had nothing to do with financial diet, obviously. But it was the first time that I had had that amount of money all at once, um, and it wasn't a lot. I think the the check in question was only for like 10 grand or something. It was part of my advance, mm-hmm. um, but it it was enough that I could really sort of choose what I wanted to do with it. Um, so I, I suppose freelance writing would be the thing that I um, that I most. Did, that I that was most similar to entrepreneurship that I did before the financial diet. And my father has always been self-employed my whole life. He has his own um, business as well, so um, so it was always kind of around me, and I and it felt natural, I think, because of my father to go into uh, small business ownership. But um, I have learned that uh, being freelance and running a small business are nothing like each other. I will say that.
0: Hmm. In in what respect?
1: Um. Running a small business, so I feel like being freelance really allows you to liberate yourself from a lot of the dynamics that most people don't like about being an employee, which is Mm -hmm. to say a lot of the administrative stuff, having to be really aware of, you know, other employees, of workplace dynamics, uh, of having to collaborate internally, all of those kind of things. Um, and when you own a small business and you have employees or you have partners, um, you get all those dynamics back. You know, I go to the office most days. I um, have to deal all the time with like internal employment related stuff and administrative stuff and things that I didn't have to think about when I was freelance. But um, having a small business really kind of gets you back into that structure. So if you are someone who doesn't love the structure of office life, uh, freelance life might be for you. But uh, starting a business, I would just caution you that your life may end up being full of a lot more of the bureaucratic stuff than it was when you were just an employee.
0: Huh, that's a very interesting take on that. And I never really thought about once, once you do scale that small business, how it really can turn into another sort of workplace dynamic. So that's a very, that's a very valid point to bring up, especially for our younger listeners who, who might be thinking about starting their own thing because they're not super fond of that corporate life. That is definitely a valid point to be thinking about as you progress through your, your career path. Um, now, one little side. Yeah. Oh, go for it.
1: Uh, well, I was just going to add, you know, and that's not to say that uh, it's not, it's not enjoyable. It is. Mm-hmm. I find it enjoyable. Um, but I also found being an employee pretty enjoyable. Um, but I think that it, the key is to be honest with yourself about what you don't like about work and be very careful not to recreate the things that you don't like, because when you do scale a business, um, you know, for example, if you didn't like when you were an employee, an employee having to deal with, you know, requesting vacation time and, you know, going through payroll for your insurance and all of that stuff. Um, imagine doing that, but for seven other people. Um, so, you know, and there is a degree to which you can outsource some of this stuff and hopefully you will have other people that you're working with who can focus on different things. But, um, just be aware of the fact that once you start working with other people, uh, you may find yourself doing a lot of the things that you wanted to get away from when you left your nine to five.
0: Mm. Absolutely, and I mean just having that self awareness to realize what is going to work for you in a workplace and what is not going to work for you, and what you prefer and what you don't, it is really key. So that so that people know what they should be looking for and what they should be avoiding um, from the get, and just being aware of of those different things. So uh, a quick little uh, tidbit that I wanted to hit on here as well, as far as entrepreneurial endeavors go, is your um, Chelsea Vegan um, YouTube channel, um, which I know is still around, even though you have created this financial diet channel. Um, I just wanted to hit on that a little bit and ask you um, sort of if you still um, look at it at all, if, if it really motivates you or if you even um, don't, don't think about it anymore.
1: I honestly keep forget it forgetting that I have it. I honestly <laughs> should take it down. So I, I made like three videos, uh, you know, years ago, um, just about life and stuff. And, and, um, I never deleted them just cause I didn't get around to it. And mm-hmm. I, um, should because i I use i use that account just to to watch youtube so Mm. lord only knows what's on there um but uh so i yeah i should get rid of it i don't i don't do personal youtube Uh, i know a lot of people do and i like watching a lot of it but it's just not for me i'm uh i was never into the vlogging thing i think i i just answered a couple questions in those videos but um working on YouTube in a professional capacity has taught me that I really like the separation between, you know, I do the show and it's me talking obviously, but it's not mm-hmm. centered around my life, which I like.
0: Yeah. Okay. Okay. Very interesting. Very interesting take on that. I was just curious, uh, what, what the, how, how that really still served you or if it didn't. So starting off, I believe it was you, um, and Lauren who who started off the financial diet. Is that, is that correct? That's correct. Cool. Um, and then what was it sort of like building a business with somebody else? Because personally I have never had sort of a co-founder or a partner in any of the projects that I've worked on. So what was that experience like for you finding a balance between what you two were doing? Was there sort of like a, um, I don't want to say synergy, but sort of like a, um, um, um what each of you guys were were specializing in, or what did that look like
1: well um so I would say that i if it's at all available to you to have a partner when you're starting something, I recommend it because okay. it's incredibly helpful for staying accountable, especially mm. in the early days when um it's you know it's not particularly easy and you're maybe not making a lot of money and you don't want to keep going every day having a partner does does really help um i As far as, you know, uh, the dynamic of it, I would say that what was nice about it is that Lauren and I have extremely different personalities. Um, We don't want the same things uh, in terms of our work life. We don't have the same skill sets, and we are very comfortable taking very different roles. She's very comfortable being more behind the scenes. I'm very comfortable being a little bit more in in front of them. And um, I think that allowed us to have a really healthy working relationship. Um, As far as anyone who's looking to get a partner, I would say get someone who is as unlike you as possible, because the areas in which you're likely to have the most trouble are the areas in which you overlap the most because that creates um, competition and that creates tension um, and you fight over things. Um, So I think that that would be... Kind of my biggest takeaway, um, and also I think the the biggest thing to do from from day one is always be incredibly transparent about all financial things, um, mm. and and that's something that we practice throughout the company, but especially between the partners. Because it's not just Lauren and myself anymore. We um, are extremely transparent and equitable about money. Everything is done in the open, and none of us are really out to become rich. Uh, I mean, obviously, we'd all like to live, you know, comfortable lives to an extent, but none of us, I think, have a very, um, none of us are looking at it from a, how can I maximize my personal gain in this situation? Um, And none of us have aspirations uh, to become, you know, really famous or to, you know, have an enormous amount of personal wealth. Um, So I think allowing that focus to always be on what is best for the group and what allows all of us to live our best life is uh, is another really important element. I think someone who is a lot more ambitious probably would have been more difficult to work with in terms mm-hmm. of personal gain.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I like I like that keeping, keeping on the collective rather than each individual person sort of butting heads with each other and really trying to get ahead. It's more focused on the group and really moving the whole organization forward and, and being transparent about it too because that's not something that at least I personally see a lot um, in, in I, I mean, I haven't worked for many startups. I've mostly just worked for like big companies. Um, but, but what I see there is very much everything's done behind closed doors. Nobody's kept in the loop unless you need to be kept in the loop. That, that, that really just, it speaks volumes to, to how I would, how I would like businesses to operate that I am, I am a part of. So when you were bringing on other people, because now it's not just you and Lauren, like you said before, you're managing, I think you said seven people. Um, there, there's a seven person team now. Seven person team. Seven person team. Um, What was that like, sort of letting go of control in a way, bringing on more people? Was that more liberating, more scary at first, or or what did that balance look like?
1: Um, I would say overall more liberating because I'm very lazy. So it's nice (laughs) not having to do 100% of everything by myself. Um, But I I think, you know, a a very key change that has happened this year is we have a third. partner. Her name's Annie and she runs a lot of the the business stuff, sales, marketing, um, kind of operational stuff. Mm -hmm. And that has been a life changer because I'm very bad at those things. Um, and she's very good at them and they're, and she has a way of thinking that is, um, very different to mine in terms of our Mm -hmm. approach, but she's incredibly smart and I really trust her decision-making. So, um, I think having the right team members is is crucial. We have other team members who, who do different jobs in editorial and, you know, a, a, around the company who are essential at what they do and do it much, much better than I ever could. So I would say that growing the team can be stressful, but if you are making the right decisions and finding the right people and, and, and more, I think most importantly, able to admit I'm not so good at this thing. You should probably do it. Um, and to cede that control is, is incredibly powerful. I think the CEOs who I really do not admire the people who I think endlessly glamorize the hustle and working so hard and pulling all nighters and, you know, mm. sacrificing your personal life. I think that stuff is nonsense and I think it's damaging and I don't think it proves anything other than the fact that you're inefficient at your job. But More importantly, I think it's almost all self-imposed because I think it's usually founders who don't know when to cede control and who don't know when to accept their weaknesses and they want to micromanage everything. And that is just something you cannot do. Um, And if you don't know how to do it, I think you're doomed to be the victim of your own success. Whereas if you can delegate and you can give up control or final say on things and, and give up managing of things. Success can be a wonderful thing because it doesn't all automatically fall on your plate.
0: Mm, I love that so much. So how did you decide what to delegate first? Um, and how did you find the person to, to bring onto your team?
1: So I think it's the first hiring decision we ever made was years ago. We hired an editor to help manage the site.
0: Um,
1: and that was just done out of necessity because it was where we were do, do, producing the most content, where we were making the most money, and we needed mm-hmm. help just in terms of production. Um, and I think, you know, people have I've, – I've, I'm certainly not the first person to observe this, but I know it's said a lot um, that hiring should always be done really out of necessity. It should really be we're at a breaking point or we have way too much work on our hands or no one is good at this. Like – it has to come from a place of necessity. If it doesn't, it's almost guaranteed to cause more headaches than it's solved. And I think Mm. that that's because the idea of hiring someone can be very tempting. When you come up with theoretical work that they could be doing, Mm. it can be very tempting. But quite often, if that work were really what you needed at that time, you would already be doing it, or at least attempting to. Um, And the mistakes that we've made in hiring have always been for roles that we really didn't need filled at that time, um, so I think always hiring out of necessity is is, is definitely the way to go.
0: Mm, that definitely that definitely makes sense. Now, could you talk about some of the most significant challenges you faced in really growing this growing this business to where it's at right now? And then I have a couple of specific ones that I want to hit on as well. If you do not bring these up, but what have, what have been some of the biggest sort of roadblocks for you um, in this in this journey?
1: roadblocks is that specifically in financial media, everyone wants to work with really, really janky, unethical affiliate marketing models and we won't do mm. that. So, um, that automatically makes our battle a little bit more uphill. So I don't regret it. I'm glad that we don't engage in that nonsense. It's a race to the bottom.
0: Mm. That's, that's huge. And there's so many, like you, you turn your head in any direction and you see 18 people trying to, trying to promote some kind of product that's going to get them a high commission and that's going to get you, um, most times not much of anything. So I think that's, that's really, um, notable that you guys don't, um, promote those, those products, those services that might give you guys a hefty commission today. Um, but a couple of weeks, a couple months, a couple of years down the line, um, people probably won't be so thrilled that you were promoting those things. So, um, I completely agree that those things are a race to the bottom and, and people who are promoting those, not, not the best role models. Um, as far as that goes, um, what do you do? Um, when you are, are faced with doubt. So I know personally myself and a lot of our listeners, I hear that they are faced with um, either the imposter syndrome or they just have some kind of self-doubt about, um, I don't think I'm good enough at this. They wake up one day and they're like, what am I even doing? Um, so, so do you ever get, do you ever feel doubt in, in what you're doing or, or if you're on the right path? Um, and how do you address that?
1: So I'm someone who doesn't, experience that too much. I used to more. uh, Now I don't as much. And I think part of the reason is that, and I, I mean, I say this with all due respect, most people that you'll meet in any career are not that smart or that talented. They don't know that much that you don't. And quite to the contrary, especially in industries like finance and media, you will meet a lot of people who are outright idiots. Um, and they have managed to succeed. And a lot of people who have succeeded, it is primarily because of how they grew up, who they know, who their parents know, Um, just being able to take an unpaid internship that leads you to the right job. Um, A huge amount of people in the professional world got there because the path was a lot easier for them. And as a result, a lot of the people that you'll interact with, I mean, I, I don't even have a degree and I constantly interact with people who make just flagrant spelling and grammar mistakes, who mm. uh, aren't particularly articulate when you talk to them in, in, in meetings, who um, don't have like super savvy um, sort of professional skills when it comes to communication. Um, and that's, I would say probably more the norm than the exception. And all those people went to college and a lot of them went to really good colleges. Um, and so I look around at that and I'm like, okay, well, this person is, you know, uh, a VP at this company. They're probably making, you know, at least, you know, into the, well into the six figures depending on where they're working. You know, they've clearly made it this far and they can barely put together a, a coherent email. Um, and I look at that stuff, and, and again, I think especially in, in a lot of the more structured corporate environments, this tends to be more the norm than the exception as far as mediocrity goes, and I think, okay, well, you're not doing probably too bad if that's, if that's what's going on in a lot of these boardrooms, mm-hmm. um, or even just a lot of these, you know, middle management offices. Um, and, I, and I don't say that to be degrading to these people because, well, A, I'm not naming names, obviously, but more importantly, I think... I think that's the nature of a lot of professional environments: is creating a lot of busy work, creating a lot of uh, redundancy, creating a lot of these um, jobs that sort of uh, crystallize over the years. But you can't really tell at the end of the day what you're doing. Um, My husband isn't in this industry anymore, but he used to be in management consulting, and I think all of us would be pretty shocked if we learned the level of. Incompetence or pointlessness happening at the middle management level and above in basically every fortune 50 and probably fortune 500 company um, So, you know, I think about that stuff. I mean, it's great. It's crazy. Like you you will hear stories and you can look them up there's subreddits about this like entire floors of people where they can't justify what they're doing or they don't even know what they're doing um, and and again, I I, I don't even, it's not any of these people's fault, particularly. I mean, you have certain things like the Peter Principle, in effect, where people essentially rise to the job at which they're no longer very good. Um, I think that's obviously part of it. Part of it is structural, but also part of it is just that people on average aren't that smart. I think I read, I can't remember what the stat is, but it's something like the average American reads at an eighth grade level. Um, So anyway, all of this to say, if you are self-aware enough Uh, To be really questioning whether or not you're good enough and to be measuring your skills and accomplishments up against someone else or, you know, really trying to calibrate where you fit into an industry or even a company, you're probably better off. You're probably better off than most of those people. You're probably already doing better. You're probably already more competent because interestingly enough, it's usually the people who are completely incompetent or mediocre at their jobs who never, ever stop to ask am I good enough? Um, they just never do. And, um, you know, I think for women, for people of color, for LGBT people, because a lot of us were typically excluded from a lot of these environments, it is very easy for us to constantly be questioning ourselves. And just remember that the average person in almost any industry is, is probably not that great. You're probably doing fine.
0: Wow. That, that's a perspective shift, especially for me. Um, so that's definitely, I mean, that's, that's a huge, that's a huge, like game changer. And just being able to realize that <laughs> you're able to, to think that big picture that you're probably doing pretty well yourself. So <laughs> thank you. Thank you for that. Um, bouncing back, <laughs> you said you, you don't have a degree Was that out of, out of choice. Was that out of financial situation or like, why, what made you not want to go to school?
1: Uh, I would say it was a combination of all three. I was an absolutely terrible student in high school. I nearly (laughs) failed. Um, So I didn't get into any colleges. So that was the first part. I went to a community college um, and I got into some schools in America to transfer to, but they were all too expensive. So I ended up going to um, school in France where I lived for several years because it was basically free there if you can take, you know, regular French university classes. Um, but I ended up getting a job, uh, pretty, pretty soon after moving to France. I, I got a job, um, well, I started working as a freelance writer and got enough money that I could do it full time. So I dropped out of school and I stopped my other side job there and just continued to do that full time. And I've never, I think eventually if I move back to a country where college is free, I might go back to college because I am sort of interested in, in learning for kind of the sake of it, but I would never pay for college absolutely ever
0: interesting what what kind of degree do you think you'd get
1: I think I'd like to get a degree in Spanish because i'm I'm bilingual so and I, the French is quite similar to Spanish so it's already mm-hmm. pretty easy for me to like listen to stuff and know what i'm what I'm hearing and I can you know communicated a very basic way, but I feel like it's embarrassing that I live in America and I don't speak Spanish like I feel I feel like every American should speak Spanish Um, So if I were to go back to get a degree, I think I would want it to be something really practical like learning Spanish, for example
0: I mean the fact that you are bilingual in America definitely puts you far above the vast majority of the population because like we already established most of them are reading at an eighth grade level and that's in their native language of English. <laughs> so I think bilingual is definitely nothing to be embarrassed about. But yeah, I think I think adding Spanish would definitely be a solid a solid play. Um
1: well thank yet, you. Also oh sorry, go ahead.
0: Nope, nope, I nope, it's all you.
1: Uh so I did look it up. It is indeed most Americans read at an eighth grade level, so <laughs> that's that. Um but uh <laughs> The funny thing about speaking more than one language is that I think um, it actually just makes you feel worse about not knowing more because you know that it's possible. I think Mm -hmm. when you only ever grow up with English, just because English is so pervasive throughout the world um, and it's so easy to just speak English, it can be really hard to even get past that first hump. But there's really no excuse once you've got one to not have more than one, I think. But Mm. that's just me.
0: That that makes sense. I mean, it's so easy to be... Um, ignorant. I mean, speaking for myself, I, I, I'm not proficient in Spanish at all. I've taken a couple university courses in Spanish, but that's definitely nothing making me fluent. Um, but but just being able to be so complacent with, I speak English, everybody else should be able to speak English. So I'm just going to sit here in my in my own little bubble um, and speak English. It, it's easy to get complacent. And I can see how um, once you got past that, it would be very um, obvious to you that you are still so limited in comparison to the rest of the world where a lot of my peers, um, that I communicate with in other countries, um, speak fluently four languages or more. Um, so, so that's definitely, definitely an eye-opening experience I would imagine. Earlier, you did mention that your father has been either self-employed or started his own business. Was that, was he sort of a mentor figure to you in starting your own business or, um, did you have any other mentors that were particularly, um, impactful on you?
1: So I think the, the biggest thing that I always learned from my father is client relations. My father's an illustrator. Um, and so most of his job is just interfacing with clients and getting new ones. Um, well, obviously drawing is a substantial part of it, but uh, as far as the actual business part of it, it's, it's just a lot of client interfacing. And my father's just someone who is extremely genial, extremely easy to talk to um, very cordial and professional and that is something I think I always picked up from him. He's just a really, really, um, a really great communicator on a professional level in a way that is very human, but also very clear and articulate and um, focused. So I, I kind of always learned that from him um, as far as, uh, you know, how I operate Myself um as far as other mentors the biggest one after that would probably be we uh, You know, what actually scratch that I I I don't want to sound conceited, but I I can't think of anyone in particular There's a lot that I read, you know hmm. There's a lot of people that I follow that I love but they're not my like they don't I don't know them in real life They're not my you know real life mentors.
0: Okay. Who are some of the people whose content you consume or read?
1: Um, yeah, uh, so my two favorite business writers, they're, um, I'm going to butcher the one's name. Let me look him up. Sorry. No uh, it's, so it's Jason Fried or Jason Fried. I don't actually know how it's said. Uh, and the other one is, uh, he goes by DHH. Oh my God. I'm literally, I'm looking them up on the computer while I'm literally sitting in front of their book, which is on my desk. Uh, <laughs> so it's Jason, Jason Fried or Jason Fried and David Heinemeyer Hansen. And they, um, the two of them own, uh, a business together, um, I think it was originally 20, 20, so 27 Signals is the blog for it. Um, they created uh, Ruby on Rails, which is a coding language, yeah. um, and they have uh, a small business that they've kind of intentionally kept small over the years. Um, uh, they're both open socialists and um, very sort of human first. Uh, slow and steady, always choosing to remain independent, not taking funding, all that kind of stuff. Um, and their approach to business, how they talk about it on Twitter, like they're always, especially, um, David is always going after Silicon Valley bros for, you know, glamorizing working, you know, 150 hour weeks or whatever. Mm. Um, and kind of being a little bit combative about which I like. Um, but also their books are just full of really, really fantastic advice. Um, and uh, they just seem like really wonderful people. And I, I really admire their uh, long-term approach to, to choosing to stay small and choosing to create a healthy and sustainable and um, human-first work environment for their team.
0: Hmm. That's very interesting. Any um, of the books in particular that you would recommend? or
1: Their first one, Rework, is a great way, place to start. They just did another one. I haven't read it yet called It Doesn't Have to be Crazy at Work. Um, I have to read that one next. Uh, But yeah, I I really love them as far as business goes. I mean, there's not a ton of great, you know, if you're someone who is, let's just say, far left of center politically and believe uh, that, you know, people should not have to work crazy hours and live crazy lives in order to live a good life. There's not a ton of American business people who... (laughs) embody that. So it's, although David isn't American, he's Nordic, but he lives here now, but it's, it's nice to find people like that who've chosen to do business that way and, and prosper.
0: Yeah. There's definitely no shortage of business books that tell you to work your face off, work a hundred hours a week, work, 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 hustle, hustle, hustle. Um, definitely no shortage of those, but it's good to, to get some stuff on the other side. And would be very interested to read, um, rework. Um, in order to sort of get that perspective change, because I've definitely been getting caught in this in this feedback loop of of all this stuff that, that is widely pervade and I, I think it would be a good change of pace to, to sort of get myself out of that ecosystem for a little bit. So um, that's definitely something that I plan on checking out.
1: Yeah, I feel like the personal finance, the personal finance bubble in media is a lot of that like hustle until you're just like bone dust. So yeah, I I definitely would encourage getting away from that a little bit.
0: Completely, completely agree. So I just want to toss in a couple of of hobbies that I noticed um, that you have taken up and that I sort of have some interest in as well. The first of which, I'm not sure if you actually do it anymore, but it's swing dancing. Um, I I know you used to talk about that a bit more, (laughs) but I've been getting into swing dancing recently. I've been going once a week for like a couple months now. Um, And first off, I wanted to ask you if you had any tips for uh, beginners trying to learn um, a thing or two about swing dancing, um, and secondly, I wanted to know if you saw any transferable skills between the time you spent learning the swing dance and uh, sort of the, the the projects that you've built now.
1: Well, first of all, hats off. I love any man who's learning to dance, um, <laughs> but uh, as far as tips for learning swing dancing or any kind of dance, really, especially partner dance, um, for like the first six months that I was learning, I would just walk around in the East Coast swing steps. You know, I would just literally walk around my house or even work with just doing one, two rock step just to just to get it to the point where I didn't have to think about it anymore. Um, and it was just really natural. Um, so that would probably be my my first tip, my biggest tip. Um, and as far as transferable skills, um you know, I think the biggest skill that most people get from learning partner dance, I think, is just confidence and kind of presence in one's own body and that, that real feeling of, of confidence, both in, in, your, in your body and in your choices and, and feeling very sturdy in, with yourself. And I, I definitely feel that that transfers. I, I think that it definitely made me a more, um, a more confident person. And um, I think it shows, in, in especially in very physical social situations, like when you're on stage or, or presenting
0: hmm very interesting i'm really glad to hear that and i'm, I'm stoked to, to learn more about it each and every day um the the second hobby that i wanted to hop into was cooking um i know from your instagram that you're a, a pretty avid uh home cook so um as as a as a college student and as we have a bunch of college student listeners here um do you have any uh any advice for us who are looking to sort of not eat ramen for every meal um, and just sort of (laughs) develop some good cooking habits and and really put some good food in our bodies.
1: So my number one tip is get really good at freezing food. Learn what freezes well. Learn how to freeze things properly because different things are frozen in different ways. You know, Uh, just get really, really good at freezing food because ultimately even someone who has a lot of time and flexibility is not going to be able to cook every single day. So Mm -hmm. um, it's very important that very important that your choices aren't every night cook something from scratch or go out or order in. Mm. There has to be a middle ground. Um, my freezer at any given time is full of like 15 tupperwares of frozen foods, usually like soups, pasta sauces, you know, other things that freeze really well. Mm. Um, and, and I most of the time, I wouldn't say most, I would say I try to cook a full true meal from scratch uh, three nights a week. And then oh. I, I try to have one max two nights a week where I'm eating something leftover or frozen, um, and then try to only go out one to two nights a week or, or in, you know, I don't always get it, but I, that's like my goal ratio. But if I didn't get really good at saving food and, and freezing it, like I would probably be eating out twice as much as I do,
0: mm, which in New York
1: is extremely expensive.
0: Oh, I would imagine. So I'm definitely in the Midwest myself. So cost of living is not quite as high, but, um, that's, that's really interesting. I, um, I've been taking up sort of batching and like making a big batch of something on the weekend, but I think freezing that would be really interesting. that I could sort of vary it up a bit and I wouldn't have to eat the same thing every day for lunch for the week. So um uh, might have to start taking that up, do some research there. Um what was sort of the draw for you to learning how to cook or, or what's the main value that you get out of cooking?
1: Oh my gosh, I love it so much. But you know, my <laughs> I grew up I grew up with it. My mom cooked pretty much every night. Um so I there's a nostalgia to it I love the the mindlessness of it in a way you know it's a it's something that isn't too cerebral you get to be creative and work with your hands and do something that is uh, you know very sensory and very enjoyable um you know take your time I like to listen to podcasts or shows or whatever while I'm doing it or music and you know you can have a glass of wine and it's just a really it's the best part of my day when I do it for sure um and it also tastes Right. You know, I love cooking and I love the, I love the creative and the kind of discovery aspect of it. And there's nothing I think more satisfying than successfully recreating something at home that you liked out of the home and, you know, kind of like solving a mystery a little bit. Huh.
0: I really, I really like that way of thinking about it. Um, and, and yeah, it's definitely a very relaxing thing um, when you can just plug a mu- some music or a podcast in and just, yeah, just, just work with your hands and, and get something going. So I really like that a lot. Um, now, I sort of want to shift back into the uh, the personal finance gear um, and just talk a little bit more about, about the financial diet and what you do there. So the, the first thing that I want to ask you, and you sort of addressed this already earlier in the show, is, is why choose to talk about money in the first place? You mentioned your experiences with money. Was that the main driver for you to create this business around money? Um, or were there any other factors that were influencing you?
1: I think very simply, I just wanted to make money something that people could talk about in a more open way, because I never felt like I could.
0: That's, that's big. That's really big because it it does seem like such, at least for me personally, growing up, money was a very taboo subject. It was not something that my family, um, freely discussed. It was not conversations that I had with my peers. So, um, being able to create that platform and that resource to people to turn to when they don't have a, a support system of people who they can talk to about money. Um, that's a very, a very valuable asset to a lot of people. What are some of the biggest financial pitfalls that you see young people falling into time and time again?
1: Um, waiting until they have a lot of money to think about it.
0: Mm. And think about it meaning um, just just be diligent with the money you have and not just spend what comes in?
1: Exactly. And also thinking more long term.
0: Mm. That's, that's huge for me as well. I mean, one of the big things that I like to talk about is investing. And with a younger audience, it is it's definitely tricky to get people over that hump of of even thinking about money in the first place. My biggest um, my biggest competitor, I like to say, is inaction. Like people would would much rather just not think about these things than actually um, sit down for for half an hour and just actually think about like lo- the long term um, aspect of of money and how money is actually going to work for them in the long term. So I think that's 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 huge. Um, Yeah. Within your, your finances or within your business, how do you sort of find a balance between stabilities and unknowns? Because I know for me personally, and this is a, this is a question that I get from my listeners um, quite frequently as well, um, there's, there's, there's a lot of room to, to take risks. There's a lot of room to not take risks. Um, so where do you sort of, where do you find that balance?
1: Um, could you give me a specific example?
0: Sort of putting your money to work via investing Um, or just holding on to it. Like you said, waiting until you have a significant amount of money to do anything with it. I don't know. Does that, does that help?
1: Yeah. So uh, if uh, I always, you know, every situation is different, but generally Mm -hmm. speaking, if you have the ability to do it, having at least a retirement account is so important. If you have access to a 401k, use it. Even just the absolute minimum you can afford to do. If you have an employer match, and you can max it out, absolutely do max it out. Um, But, you know, I understand that most young people are in a terrible position financially, most of them have student debt, Uh, they're very likely underemployed, they're probably not making a lot of money. Um, So I'm aware that this conversation only even applies to a fairly privileged group already. Um, Mm -hmm. But if you do have that option, Absolutely take it as far as taking risks, I am very risk averse generally uh, mm. I'm, I, I personally believe that any form of individual stock picking is a bit of a scam um, particularly if someone's telling you they, they know how you can do it in the right way mm. um, you know and so i 'm very wary of all that stuff um, I am a supporter of you know any kind of app uh, that might help you invest if it's something that's very difficult for you I understand that for most people it's just like a knowledge gap thing Um, but I would say you know I think it's easy for a lot of people to look at investing as a risky move but it's only risky if you're thinking of it in terms of individually picking stocks which is what a lot of people imagine Um, if you are uh, talking about, you know, putting money in your 401k that not putting money in it is the risky thing to do. So I mm-hmm. think just really understanding that difference and refining the terms of what you mean by risky um, and understanding the implications of both uh, is, is just super important. But that's just me.
0: Completely, completely agree with that. And yeah, when people when people say risk, um, it doesn't always Directly translate into what you think the actual risk would be because a lot of people think that, that investing their money is risky. But when, if, if you can do it right, if you can diversify it, if you can, we don't need to talk about investing right now. But, but uh, people see that as the riskier option as to holding in a savings account. Whereas in a savings account, you're going to get outpaced by inflation, you're going to be guaranteed to lose money. Um, so, so in the grand scheme of things, um, risky definitely is a term that is thrown around a lot, but it's, it's not always used in my opinion in the proper context so i just want to hop into some of the questions that i like to ask all of my guests before we go so without further ado the first of which is what are you what are you excited about right now so this can be something um within within the financial diet this can be something some kind of project that you're working on on the side um or just something that's happening in the world right now that you're excited about
1: i'm very excited about the rise of leftist politics in america i'm very excited by like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I'm very excited by the fact that Bernie Sanders is the most pol- popular politician in America. I'm very excited <laughs> that socialism isn't a dirty word. Uh, I'm very excited about that. That is probably the most exciting thing in my life
0: right now. I am extremely with you on that. Um, I'm sure we'll get a Ooh. lot of, hopefully one-star reviews for that. Um, always love a good love a good hate comment, so um, definitely with Me you on too. that one. <laughs> um, what habits have served you particularly well Um, These can be either business or lifestyle habits that you've developed over the years.
1: Being lazy probably is the number one because that means that I find efficient ways to do things and I don't focus on shit that's not important usually. uh, I only do what's actually important and I think that most people get bogged down with focusing on way too much stuff that ultimately doesn't matter or isn't that urgent um, or doesn't really need your attention. Like a lot of people have a really hard time you know, not constantly being distracted by other tasks, um, or checking email a hundred times and I have no problem letting an email sit. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that so much. That's never an answer. That I've gotten to that question before, but that is a, that's a wonderful response that I, that I, I, know. I really like that. Well, okay. <laughs> um, what do you do that doesn't scale? So within your business, um, what kind of things? So for Ooh. me personally, it's sending like video direct messages to people I look up to, and just random followers um, here and there, um, but do you have any practices in your business that you do that just, that, that don't scale, but you just do them because they either make an impact, or that there's something that's, that's really beneficial for somebody?
1: It's a good question. Um, you know, I think, quite frankly, we, it's a really good question. Um, <laughs> so when you say don't scale, when you say don't scale, what you primarily mean by that is that we we couldn't do it a lot or that it can't really make money
0: um i mean you can't really do it a lot i mean it's something that's that's very individualized so like in my example I'm like individual like 15 second messages to just people that i look up to and people who who i want to like say hello to um but so that's something it doesn't make me money but it also it's not something that i can just like record once send it to a thousand people um so it
1: They are very effective.
0: <laughs> thank you. Um, I, I, I think they're, yeah, and a lot of people don't want to read a paragraph of text. They'd much rather, like, see somebody and hear somebody talk to them.
1: Right, right. Um, you know, I think uh, the thing that I think, well, for, for me, probably one of the biggest ones is um, we have kind of similar to, to what you're talking about on mm-hmm. – um, in Instagram we do a lot of interaction with individual followers. We, hmm. we try to do a lot of things in our stories that are very interactive yeah. um, you know and and it's unrealistic that we could get to even a fraction of the people who are sending photos or writing in or you know asking hmm. questions and things like that. Um, and ultimately that kind of engagement with your audience is hard to, track it's almost impossible to monetize like you said it's hard to scale but I think I think even if you're only able to personally connect with you know three or four people a day um, I think that the act of doing that is good for everyone involved. I think it's good for the person on the team who's getting to know the audience better. I think it's good for, obviously, the people we speak to, but I think it's also good to show that we are real humans interacting with other real humans. Um, So that's something, you know, that we'll probably never be able to do more than a few times a day, but it's something that I would never not do. And even if we could in some way, like, scale it so that, you know, 10 people were answering readers at every moment, that would be inauthentic too. There's no way you can do it Um, in mass, but I I agree that that kind of personal touch with the people that you interact with is extremely, extremely important.
0: Yeah, and those three or four real people are real people and they're really being impacted by the time you're taking and the time your team is taking out of their day to really interact with them. So uh, even if it is like, again, it's it's not scalable, but it is you're having a very deep impact with those few people you are able to interact with. Um, That's not something they're going to forget. So I think it's really important Um, at least for me to have some things, um, that I do within my business that do not scale whatsoever. Um, but that are very personal and and do go very deep with people. So I I really like to, to find out what other people are doing, uh, to that same, to that same regard. Um, and the last Mm -hmm. thing is where can people find out more about you, um, follow up with you and find out more about the financial diet?
1: We are at the financial diet on most places. I am, Some version of Chelsea Fagan, if you just Google me, there's all the URLs or the, the, all of the uh, handles are a little bit different because of the different needs of the platforms, but Mm -hmm. uh, Chelsea Fagan everywhere. Um, I'm pretty active on social media, uh, although rarely talking about work, Um, (laughs) but yeah, I'm I'm around. I'm very available.
0: <laughs> awesome. And I'll be sure to link all that stuff up in the uh, in the show notes as well. Um, but Chelsea, thank you so much for your time and spending it here on Young Smart Money today. I know I got a ton out of this conversation. I'm sure our listeners did as well. And I couldn't think of a better way to start off season two of the podcast.
1: Thank you so much. It was wonderful being here.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Young, Smart Money. If you want to support the show, you can do so in three different ways. You can subscribe, you can leave me five, and you can share this episode with a friend. To subscribe, all you gotta do is click the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. To leave me five, All you got to do is scroll all the way down to the bottom of the podcast page for Young Smart Money and click on the write a review button. And to share with a friend, all you got to do is screenshot yourself listening to this episode, post on your Instagram story, tag me, and I'll be sure to repost it in my Instagram story as well. I love giving you guys some attention who are listening to the show. Thanks for listening and I'll see you in the next one.